Let's pray. God, it's a, uh, it's a wonderful blessing to be able to gather as a church and just sing the truths of that song, that we believe in the fullness of who you are. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, born of a virgin, a sinless life, crucified in our place, uh, buried in a tomb, resurrected on the third day, ascended, and now, right now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding on behalf of his people. We believe in God, the Spirit, sent into the hearts of your people, sealing them for eternity, leading and guiding them into truth, comforting and counseling and consoling us. God, we believe in the saints' communion and in the Holy Church and the gathering of believers who are united and called together by you, brought together in local congregations like this, but ultimately representations of a global body of people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who will one day spend all of eternity worshiping in your presence. God, we believe in life eternal, that one day we will stand before you. For those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we will be judged righteous, not because of anything that we've done, but because of all of what your son did on our behalf. We'll be covered by his righteousness and ushered into your presence for all of eternity. God, when we talk about the faith, like the book of Jude says, God, these are the things that we lift up and praise to you. The fullness of who you are and who we are and what it means to be in relationship with you. God, we praise you for that. We recognize that you're the initiator of all of that and we are the beneficiaries. God, we pray that those truths would resound to your glory in our lives, in our time gathered here together. And God, we pray for the day when you fulfill your promise that that glory will resound in an unhindered way for all of eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. God, we pray that we would magnify you as we unite together to say that we believe as a church, God. Would you be glorified and honored in our time here this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can grab a seat. While you do, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We're in the book of Jude. Uh, we started this last week with the first two verses, and if you were with us, you might remember, if you weren't with us, here's how you can find Jude most easily. Go to the book of Revelation. Jude is the second to last book in your Bible. It's just, it's likely contained on one page there in your Bible. So as you're flipping backward through Revelation, don't flip in page chunks that are too big or else you might miss it. We just dealt with the first two verses last week, and we're just going to deal with the next two verses this morning, verses three and four. One of the things I said last week that I wanted to do was just read the whole book together. Um, most of us probably aren't super familiar with the book of Jude, and so if over the course of five weeks we can just hear the whole thing five times, it may be that those are the first five times that you've ever really stopped and read and thought about the book of Jude. So we're going to read the whole thing takes just a few minutes, but one thing I want to do this morning while we read it is point out just kind of the structure of the book. You can think of the book of Jude basically like an hourglass where 
you know, the top is wide, funnels down to a point, and then expands itself back out. So as we go, I'll show you what I mean. It starts with the greeting that's very wide and very broad. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Then it sort of funnels in with a statement of purpose in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. The kind of next narrowing down point, which on the top side of the hourglass would be the bottom, is a a short description of what the problem is. What is there to contend against? That comes in verse 4. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth, They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. What happens then is from verses 5 to 16, there's a longer explanation of who these people are that would need to be contended against. So now we've kind of, we've made the point there. Now we start working our way back out. So verses 5 through 16 correlate with verse 4. Now I want to remind you, Although you came to know all these things once for all, that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt and later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their own positions but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns committed sexual immorality and perversions and serve as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. In the same way, these people, relying on their dreams, defile their flesh, reject authority and slander glorious ones. Yet when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with the devil in an argument about Moses' body, he did not dare utter a slanderous condemnation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme anything they do not understand. And what they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, have plunged into Balaam's heir for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. These people are dangerous reefs at your love feast as they eat with you without reverence. They are shepherds who look only after themselves. They are waterless clouds carried along by the winds, trees in late autumn, twice dead and fruitless. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against them. These people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. Then in verses 17 to 23 is kind of the corollary to the purpose. Jude says, I'm writing to you that you would contend for the faith. In verse 17, he says, here's how. But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you in the end times, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, As you build yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And then in the same way at the start, there was this big, broad greeting. Now at the very end, the last two verses, there's a big, broad benediction. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. That is...
the book of Jude. We're just going to look at two verses, verses three and four. The goal here today is just to define very clearly for us, verse three, the purpose of the book of Jude. Verse four, the problem that the book of Jude is encouraging us to confront or to contend with. And then what I want to do is to kind of step back and say, how do we give some perspective to this? Like in modern times, how is it that we take what Jude is encouraging us to do and apply it well in our own context and in our own day today? So problem, our purpose, problem, perspective. That's what we're going to do this morning. Let me just read verses three and four again, since that's where we're going to focus. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. Where we're going to land this morning is that followers of Jesus contend for the faith without being contentious. We contend without being contentious. Look at the way Jude starts his kind of statement of purpose here. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend. When I was uh, in like middle school, junior high, 1999, the women's uh, US national team made the World Cup final. They played against China. It went through double overtime. There was a shootout. Um, we won. That was like the Mia Hamm, Brandy Chastain sort of team. My family, uh, we were a soccer family. I played soccer growing up. My sister played soccer. And so it was a big deal at our house that afternoon. We gathered around the television to watch that World Cup final with my mom and my dad. And it was normal in our family that my dad would make popcorn like on the stove. So not microwave popcorn, but actually like the the pot, put the oil and the kernels in and let it pop there. And so at halftime, we asked my dad if he would make us some popcorn. And he said, sure. So he went into the kitchen, got the pan out, poured the oil in it, started to let it heat up and came back into where we were watching the game. Well, we kind of lost track of what was happening with the popcorn and we started to smell smoke, which isn't totally abnormal. Sometimes when you make popcorn on the stove, you burn some, some of the popcorn. But then we kind of realized, or my dad realized, no popcorn had been put in yet. Um, And so we all went kind of running from our living room back into the kitchen and the kitchen is literally on fire. Like the stove is on fire, the pot is on fire, the curtains next to like our dining room table are on fire. I wanted to watch a soccer game with you, but I found it necessary to put out a fire, right? That's what happened in our house that particular day. Jude says, I wanted to write to you so that we could just all enjoy our shared salvation, just revel in the glory of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf, but the curtains are on fire and you need to put it out. So now I'm doing something different. I'm writing to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith. That is Jude's purpose, that we would content. But what's critical for us as we read this, we can kind of get like tunnel vision into one vision or, or one verse or even just one statement within a verse. So we see the phrase contend for the faith and we get amnesia about verses one and two. That Jude described the manner in which this is done. That those who have been saved by God's grace, called, loved, kept people of God would overflow with mercy, peace, and love. And out of that overflow now would contend for the faith. The picture here is Jesus. Contrary to what our flesh might want us to feel, 
aggressive in disagreement or you know, loud in an argument. Those are not fruits of the spirit. Jesus is the model for how we can do this really, really well. He does not shy away from correcting and rebuking the false ideas and teachings of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. But you never walk away from having read the gospels thinking to yourself, wow, Jesus was an angry man. You don't finish up reading the book of Matthew or reading the book of Luke and close it and think, you know what my big takeaway is about Jesus? He was really cantankerous and easily angered. He could just yell louder in disagreement. You walk away thinking to yourself, there's a man overflowing with mercy, peace, and love who also was not afraid to contend for the truth. Controlled by mercy, peace, and love, but unafraid to call out something false and to correct it with something true. When we see the word contend, if you were to be reading this in a Greek Bible, that word is actually fairly long. And if you vocalize it, the middle couple syllables sound like the English word agonize. Our idea of agony is like anguish, pain, or maybe like suffering through something difficult and challenging. Similar here in the original language, but the word actually means something a little more broad. The thrust in Greek is that to contend would be to exert energy in a noble cause or to patiently struggle for or on behalf of a noble cause. The image is actually of like an Olympic athlete or a soldier in the military, whether today or in the first century, training for the Olympics is a noble cause. Training to defend your nation is a noble cause. Jude says, contend for the faith. That's a noble cause that you would exert energy for something noble. And that noble thing is the faith. The point of all this is that Jude's readers would have understood that the call to contend for the faith was not a call to be angry, but a call to engage patiently for the nobility and the truth of the faith. And when we talk about the faith in an American context, we tend to go to like the very personal individualized view of like my belief. Like I need to contend for my faith in Jesus, for my belief in hanging on to my belief in Jesus. When Jude or other New Testament writers talk about the faith, they mean the full scope of biblical truth. The truth about who God is, the truth about who humanity is and why we need a savior, all the glorious aspects of who Jesus is and how he alone uniquely fulfills the role of savior, and then all the implications and outworkings of belief in Jesus. That is the faith. The fullness of scripture beginning to end as it lays out the truth about God, the truth about his son, the truth about humanity's need for a savior and what it means to live in relationship with that savior. That is what we are called to contend for. Everything wrapped up in the reality of the gospel and what it means to have been made right with God and to follow Jesus. Dear friends, I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, but the curtains were on fire, so I found it necessary to write instead, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Two sort of takeaways inside of that. Number one, in order to contend for the faith, we have to know the faith. When we we gather together on Monday afternoons, typically, and our entire pastoral staff sits and we look at a given passage and we talk about the sermon that's coming up. And when we were together doing that this past Monday, Joe Stewart very succinctly asked the question, how can you contend for a faith you know nothing about? 
One of the great weaknesses in the American church today is a discipleship weakness, that people within the church know a little bit about Jesus, but some of what they know about Jesus is more cultural than it is biblical. And so contending for the faith becomes this very muddy thing where we're actually uncertain what is cultural, like, Uh, framework laid on Jesus and what's biblical truth about who God is and who humanity is and what the actual faith entails. When we at LCF talk about building devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, we're talking about individuals who know the faith, who stand upon the truth of the gospel in all of its fullness. We offer some programs around here, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, that are intended to push you into and toward relationships, but are also intended to help us know and understand the faith. Our men uh, within our church gather for something on Saturday mornings called the Men's Legacy Lab. Uh, It's wrapping up its fall semester, but it'll launch again in the spring. What they've been doing over the last few semesters, they've just been walking through the attributes of who God is. Who is is God and what are his attributes that we cannot model because he is other and different and greater and superior to us? And then what are the characteristics of God that we can model because we are made in his image? And so what should we be being conformed conformed into to live in his image. That's part of knowing the faith. Our women gather for women's Bible studies on either Monday night or Tuesdays in the morning. They pick different studies out that either deal with different facets of walking with Jesus or different truths about who God is or walk through different parts of the book. That's part of knowing the faith. We put a big emphasis and we're passionate about discipleship relationships because one of the best ways to learn the truth of what it means to walk in relationship with Jesus is to get real close to someone who's doing it ahead of you and see their life and ask them and talk to them about why it is that they live that way or they interact in their parenting or their marriage or their career or their singleness or whatever it might be in the way that they do. How is it that the faith impacts that? We also, a couple of years ago, um, went through a whole process as a church. We took the entire narrative uh, structure, big story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and we walked through it over the course of a year in something we called the Bible Initiative. We put together a bunch of resources that people could use so that they could start to get familiar with their Bible, so that they would know what it is that they believe. That resource is still available on our website. If you go to lcfliberty.org and you click on the discipleship tab, there's a resources link that you can click. And one of those in there is all of that backlogged Bible initiative stuff. If you think to yourself, I would like to know the faith better so that I could contend for it. And you intuitively know that the Bible is where you should go for that, but you have no idea where to start or you get overwhelmed at times. That uh, resource is a year long, It gives five Bible readings every day that were chronologically Genesis to Revelation. And then there are sermons that go along with it and some other sort of like podcasts or other resources that we put next to it that's super helpful. We want our congregation to know the faith so that they can contend for the faith. The other reality here is that that faith isn't changing. It was delivered last part of verse three, once for all. It's not shifting. It never has and it never will. The tendency in our age is to want to adjust Christianity in order to fit our times. And that's not unique to 2020. That's something that's been true about the human heart in relation to Christianity since it began. That as the unique pressures of any given modern society start to press in on people, we feel this tug to maybe want to alter Christianity a little bit so that it would be more palatable to our culture. It doesn't need that. 
It was delivered once for all. The truths are timeless. The applications may need to take certain directions given the context or the place that you live in or the time that you live in. But the truth is never changing once for all. God is who God is. Humanity is who humanity is. Jesus is who Jesus is. And there's only one way to be reconciled. And none of that is ever going to shift. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He's talking about the faith in the gospel. He says, pardon me if I offer a quiet suggestion. Open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. We don't need to help the faith. We contend for it on its terms. We don't need to help make it more palatable or more applicable or more uh, easily acceptable in our day. We allow the truths of God to speak for themselves and he will take care of himself. There's the purpose. Contend for the faith that was delivered once for all. Verse four is the problem. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. And then Jude is going to describe them very briefly in verse four with three descriptors. Number one, they are ungodly. That doesn't need a ton of explanation. These people live as though God does not exist with no reference to him, certainly with no reverence to him. Descriptor number two, they they turn the grace of God into sensuality. That would be to turn grace into license for sinning. This is the outward means by which Jude recognizes who these people are. When we hear the word sensuality, we think almost in terms, almost exclusively in terms of like sexual sort of sin. That is a component. When you get down to verse seven and Jude makes a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking about that explicit sort of sexual sin. But he's talking about some other things because the word that he uses there is more broad than just sexual sin. He talks about greed. That's a component of this sensuality. Essentially what he's talking about is anything that would cause a person to live as though what is going to make them feel good is what matters most and so that's what they do. And then they say, and it's fine because grace has covered me. I'm forgiven. It doesn't matter. Jesus has already forgiven me. That thought is still incredibly prevalent in the church today. Turning grace into sensuality or license to sin simply means that those people who are lurking within the church live as though the grace of God is a green light for however they want to live. Whatever feels good, sounds good, whatever they think uh, is appropriate or according to their own desires, they can do that. And if it goes against scripture, that's okay. Jesus died for me. The third piece is that they deny Jesus Christ as master and Lord. And this is the core of the issue. The only way to live in a godless manner and to turn grace into license is to believe, think, and act as though Jesus Christ is not master and Lord. One of the things that Jude is pointing out here is that you can identify who these people are by the way that they live. You don't have to probe super deeply into what they believe. Their life is going to bear fruit in terms of what they believe about Jesus. That is still true today. What we believe about Jesus is evident in the way that we live. Let me make a few clarifying statements. How we live is not what saves us. That's legalism. To think that you could be righteous enough on your own, you could follow the Bible's commands well enough on your own, you could do enough good to save yourself by the way that you live, that's legalism and it's not true. What is true though, is that how we live ought to be evidence of whether or not we've been saved. If you understand the grace of God that saved you, you would also have to understand that it is that grace of God that is also transforming you. You can't have God's grace and separate the two. You can't have God 
and Jesus Christ and his grace as your savior and not have him as your Lord and your master. Once you've tried to separate those two things, now you're living as though Jesus is not who Jesus says he is, that's ungodly, and you're living as though you can do whatever you want because his commands don't matter. That's turning grace into sensuality or into license. You cannot have Jesus as your savior and not as your Lord. He must be both. The grace that saved you is the grace that transforms you. Two other pieces of verse four about this sort of problem that exists. He makes a statement about the outcome of these people. They were designated for judgment long ago. Verses five through 16, if you've kind of been you know, really paying attention as we've read the whole letter out loud the last two weeks are where things get like super confusing. We're talking about angels that were locked in chains and, and uh, we're talking about something from the days of Enoch and something else. Verses five through 16 are where the letter gets a little bit confusing. It is an explanation of verse four that these people have been designated for judgment. Let me just give the simple answer today and next week we're gonna look at those verses more in depth. The simple answer is this. That scripture from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation has made it clear that those who live without reference to God, so they're godless, those who deny Jesus Christ, they will be judged. That judgment has been set up from eternity past. You cannot uh, live without reference to or live in opposition to God and not face judgment. Jesus makes that clear. The Old Testament makes that clear. All the epistles in the New Testament make that clear. The book of Revelation makes that clear. There will be a reckoning and a separating one day. Those whose identity is wrapped up in the reality of Jesus Christ being their savior and their Lord will be taken to spend eternity in God's presence. While those who lived in an ungodly, licentious, or Christ-denying manner will be cast away for all of eternity. Jesus says there will come a day when the wheat is separated from the chaff, when the sheep are separated from the goats, There will come a day where the trees that bear good fruit and those that do not will be separated and those that do not will be burned. There will be judgment. And then what makes Jude, the book of Jude, unique is that Jude talks specifically about the place where he has located this problem. These people have come in by stealth. They're in the church. Here's how a letter in the first century Uh, one of these epistles would have been delivered to a place. A courier would have gone from Jude and taken it to like the specific city or church where it was supposed to go or to the area where there was a large uh, church gathering or a large area where there were multiple churches. And the letter carrier would find the leader of that church and give them the letter. Then the leader would call together that church and stand before that gathered body and read it out loud. So imagine, there you are, first century, the book of Jude, the letter of Jude is read to you and you hear these words. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. And you're sitting there looking to your right and your left like, is that you? Is that, is that you? Is that James in the back? Is that me? Who's he talking about? One of the unique things about Jude is that he's not saying there are all these problems that exist outside the walls of the church and we need to rail against those. The letter of Jude is saying there are problems in here and we need to be able to contend for the truth of the faith against those problems within your gathered body. I wanted to write something nice and celebratory to you, but instead here we are. The curtains in the kitchen are on fire You wanted to watch the World Cup final, but we've got to deal with that problem. That's what Jude 
is trying to do. His purpose is that his people would contend for the faith. And the problem is that there are ungodly, grace-denying, lordship-denying individuals sitting within the confines of their church. So the question then for us today is, what do we do with that? What's, how do we contend well for the faith in our own day? And what exactly are we contending against today in 2020 in the American church. I wanna give a little bit of perspective toward this, but I wanna start with a reminder. Remember verses one and two. The people of God, saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, need not worry whether they are saved or not. You've been called, loved, and kept. If you've received God's grace for your salvation and you lean for your identity on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, you need not worry if you're one of these people who's designated for judgment. And as you contend, you do so with an overflow of mercy, peace, and love. That is what we need in order to contend well. And the good news of the gospel is that the fullness of the gospel illuminates the hollow nature of lesser beliefs while providing the remedy to our heart's longings. Let me explain what I mean. The answer to the people sitting in Jude's initial audience here or within our own churches today, the answer to their false beliefs and their denying Jesus Christ as our only master and Lord is partially, yes, an explanation of the facts of the gospel. They just need to hear the truth. The other part of it though is that their heart longs for something and it thinks it can find that something in some other strain of thought. They need to see and have illuminated for them the beauty of the gospel and that would provide the remedy for what their heart is searching for in something else. Oftentimes we think that what's most needed is a factual debate when a lot of times what's needed is to highlight what that person's longing for and then to show them the beauty of the gospel and how the gospel meets that longing. Let me give you some examples in our own day today. I could take a lot of these. There are any number of these present within the modern church. I I can't, I don't have time to do them all. So I'm gonna do some that I think are particularly applicable. The first one that I think is most readily evident is that our entire kind of American society right now is one that functions under the idea of relativism. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. And your truth can be your truth and my truth can be my truth. And none of those truths ever have to contradict one another. They can just be. That's relativism. You find that within certain strains of the American church all the time. Our hearts long for there to be this level playing field. You see, that's where this really germinates. It's a a longing for fairness. I just want it to be fair. Like, I, I want that person to have a fair shot and me to have a fair shot and this person over here to have a fair shot and maybe his truth being his truth and her truth being her truth and my truth being my truth is the best way to make it fair. The answer is actually in the gospel. The gospel is incredibly fair for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the issue is not that we just need to bend to everybody's version of the truth. What we need is for people to bend to the truth of the Bible. And that reality is that at the foot of the cross, we're all on level footing, sinful, condemned, and separated from God. The other side of the good news of the gospel is that no one's sin is so far gone that Jesus's death cannot pay for it. That is the good news of the gospel. It is incredibly fair. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all can be made righteous thanks to Jesus Christ by receiving his grace and putting their faith in him. That is beautiful. You want fairness? There it is. And it relieves a huge weight from your shoulders. You don't have to perform in order to be saved. 
You can just admit your own fallenness, that you're fallen like everybody else, and then see Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the beauty of the gospel. A heart that longs for fairness finds it at the foot of the cross. Relativism is a cheap substitute for that. Universalism is a cheap substitute for that. And yet you can find it creeping its way into the church. Here's another one. The prosperity gospel. We've talked about the prosperity gospel a lot here, but a brief definition of the prosperity gospel would be that which believes that Jesus's death um, primarily serves the function of providing you health and wealth in this life, making you happy and providing for your prosperity. Pictures God almost as like a slot machine, like you put enough in, enough faith, enough prayer, enough money. God eventually, when you pull the handle, will be obligated to give you wealth and happiness. That's what's at the core of that longing, happiness. We want to be happy. The prosperity gospel proliferates, not just in America, but all over the world because it's a universal longing to want to be happy. God put that within us as a means by which we would be drawn to him. Why? Because ultimate happiness is found in the Lord and not just some surface level, earthly sort of prosperity happiness, deep, heartfelt joy is found in the Lord. The prosperity gospel immediately falls apart when the brokenness of the world crashes into your life. It immediately falls apart when the cancer diagnosis comes and sending a check to the televangelist doesn't heal you. It immediately falls apart when you find out that you've lost your job because the economy turned south and you thought to yourself, I, I guess I just need more faith. As if like, I need to believe more in Jesus and his promises to me and I'll get my job back. The prosperity gospel crumbles under that. It cannot deal with the reality of human suffering in the world. And therefore, it cannot provide the happiness that it seems to promise. The glory and the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus affirms, you will suffer in this life. But then Jesus says, and I've suffered and I will be there with you. That's the beauty of the gospel. The prosperity gospel says, just believe enough or give enough and you can have health and wealth in this life. The true gospel says, you can't take any of that with you anyway, but in Jesus, you can have life to the full here and now and you can have it for all of eternity. That's the beauty of the gospel. Prosperity gospel doesn't provide the happiness it promises. It's a hollow husk of that. The true gospel does. The next one is what I've kind of lumped together as like platform Christianity or pop Christianity or kind of like celebrity Christianity. At the core of it is a desire to be like known and seen and popular, like have notoriety kind of. The general thrust is like, listen to me because I have a large audience. This sounds good, so it must be true. Social media is something that gives us access to this and has created this in a unique sort of way in our world today. Something about our flesh and our access to whether it be celebrity Christians or kind of modern day spiritual individuals thanks to social media makes it easy for us to fall in love with the messenger while we either overlook or undervalue the truth of their message. And so you see like little short clips of somebody speaking what sounds very convincingly, but it's shallow. And they're persuasive or the graphic looks good or the little Instagram clip of the person talking into their phone kind of sounds nice, but when you really stop to evaluate the truth, it's not true. The problem is that there's no accountability for that person. One of the beauties of the local church is that I have to stand up here every Sunday and look you in the eye. 
I have to go to a leadership team meeting with our leadership team every other week and look them in the eye. I sit down on Tuesdays with our staff and look them in the eye. And if something is off, one of those people is going to say, Tim, I think we missed it here. We need to correct that. With pop Christianity or oftentimes like this sort of celebrity modern spirituality, there's no accountability for that. There's no accountability for the way that they actually live. That's what Jude would say. And there's no accountability oftentimes for the message that they give. But if it gets a lot of likes and it gets a lot of retweets or shares, eh, maybe it's true. It's not. The number of followers someone has does not determine whether or not what they're saying is actually true. We are to be loyal to Jesus. Jesus was open about the fact that following him will actually put you at odds with the world at times. And yet, being at odds with the crowd but in the arms of the Savior, though uncomfortable for a moment, is secure for eternity. You are kept. And your longing to be known and seen is ultimately met by a Savior who's always watching and always with you. The next one, I'm gonna do two more. The next one is what is called moral therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful. Deism is a sort of theology about God that says God's like a clockmaker, makes the clock, winds it up, starts it, and then walks away and just says, you deal with yourself now. That God created everything and then he sort of stepped back and just looked at the world and said, you figure it out. That's deism. God's like a vending machine always around when you're hungry or in need, but also willing to be ignored when you're not. God exists, but he need not be an active, vibrant part of the universe or of your life in specific. Moral therapeutic deism says, I'll go to God when I need something from him, but then he'll go away from me for the rest of my existence. It's the mentality of like the t-shirts that kind of proliferated for a little while of like Jesus is my homeboy. It's, It's a good sentiment. And yes, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you get Jesus closer than a brother, but he doesn't just exist to prop you up and make you feel good. He doesn't just exist when you think you need him. The good news of the gospel is that when we seek consolation, that's that's ultimately what we want. We want to be consoled when life is difficult. The good news of the gospel is that God is present all the time. Having him as both Savior and Lord means that he isn't just some vending machine. It means you can feast on his goodness all the time, whether you think you're hungry or you're not. It means that he's present when you feel like you need him and when you're tempted to think that you don't. The truth of the gospel is that you always need him and he is always there will never leave, will never forsake. He's not a God who is far off. He is a God who is close at hand. The good news of the gospel is that we want to be consoled and Jesus is always there. And we don't just go to him when we think we might need him and hope that he's willing to come to us. The good news of the gospel, the way we confront something like this is to say he's always there. And that's infinitely better than a God who's far off that you might be able to grasp when things get out of control. The last one is this. I didn't exactly know how to term this and I wanted to be careful with my words. Um, So I lumped it together as what I'm gonna call Americanism. And it would be the idea that the American dream is the ultimate dream that Jesus ultimately exists to prop up and bolster my vision of what America ought to provide for me. 
We're not meant to see Jesus through the lens of our vision of the American dream. We're meant to see Jesus and allow him to highlight the righteousness that exists within that vision while also exposing the unrighteousness that exists within that vision. When we think about the American dream and we think about comfort, we think about individuality, you read the gospels and you'll see the way that the truth of the gospel cuts across that. Jesus never said that following him would ultimately bring you maximum comfort. He also never said that it would increase your bank account so that you could retire at 55 and go collect seashells in Florida. He didn't ever say that the gospel was intended to keep you safe. I want to share at length from an article by John Piper. Midway through the article, he turned and addressed pastors. He says this, May I suggest to pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. Imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real, radical Christians? Christians who can sing on the scaffold. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Christians who will act like the believers in Hebrews 10. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you know that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Christians who will fate hate and reviling and exclusion for Christ's sake and yet rejoice in that day and leap for joy because their reward is great in heaven. Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Christ? Are you raising up generations of those who say with Paul, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Have you shown them that that they are sojourners and exiles, that their citizenship is in heaven from which they await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that your greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people that the greatest issue is exalting Christ with or without America? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time, including in America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? My prayer is that we are followers of Jesus who can rejoice greatly in the blessings that God has given us by placing us in this time at this place while also looking at our own culture and our own idea of the American dream and saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not the gospel. If we hold up the entirety of the biblical picture of living in light of Jesus and the kingdom of God, we will be able to confidently and joyfully point out the flaws of our nation while holding out their gospel remedies. The good news of the gospel is that life in the kingdom of God is infinitely greater than life in any nation that has ever existed, and that includes America. That is good news. There is a capital K king who holds not just this nation, but the fate of the universe in his hand. That king is holy, righteous, just, loving, merciful, grace-filled, patient, kind, good, and he is perfectly so. The capital K king of the kingdom is better than any political leader that has ever served at the head of any nation state. The commands of the capital K king are the standard of ultimate right and wrong, more so than the dreams or visions of any nation that's ever existed. We can contend without being contentious, even in our current climate, because the gospel frees us from having to be primarily loyal to a worldly nation. Instead, we're primarily loyal to an eternal king. 
We long for comfort and individuality. And the gospel ultimately says, more so than any dream of any nation at any time in history, the gospel says, you are unique and created specially by God. And he will hold you in the palm of his hand and one day take you into a place where there is no suffering, no crying, no sin, no sadness, no sickness for all of eternity. That is the truth of the gospel. Contending for the truth of the faith in a way that's merciful and peace-filled and loving means identifying what it is in the human heart that would seek out something different and showing how the gospel answers that thing. Churches are not immune to the push in America toward relativism, the desire for health and wealth. The church is not immune from platform or celebrity Christianity. It's not immune from moral therapeutic deism. It's not immune from the effects and the influence of Americanism, but the gospel is the answer to all of those things. Followers of Jesus contend for the faith without being contentious. The way we contend without being contentious is to stand for the faith to proclaim the beauty and the goodness of the gospel as the ultimate answer to the longings that produce a false way of thinking. To contend for the faith, we have to know the faith. To present the gospel as glorious, we have to know personally that the gospel is glorious. To present false ideas as hollow, we have to know personally how it is that the gospel is the remedy to what our heart thinks it can find elsewhere. To do this well, we have to immerse ourselves in the truth of the gospel. Read it, sing it, talk about it, be encouraged, consoled, counseled, convicted, controlled by it, and ultimately increasingly submit our lives to it. That as the called, loved, and kept people of God in a way that overflows with mercy, peace, and love, we would present the truth of the gospel to those who are headed toward judgment. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we'll close in song. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for truth. God, thank you that we, as people who have been saved by your grace and by your grace alone, people who know what it is to be called, loved, and kept, God, that thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit within each and every one of us, it is possible for us to overflow with mercy and peace and love and to contend for the truth of the faith in a way that is not contentious, but instead has the aroma of another world with a greater king. God, I pray that we as a church, both collectively and individually, would be people who have that aroma. People who contend well for the faith against all the false Uh, ideologies and theologies that exist in the world and even lurk within the American church, God, that we would be able to contend against those in a way that smells like Jesus. God, that we would be able to contend against those in a way that leaves people thinking about the church today as it does if you read about Jesus in the gospels, which is there is a person who knows how to stand for truth, but does so overflowing with mercy, peace, and love. God, I pray that we would be a people that do that and then leave the results to you, allowing you to draw people into faith, allowing you to meet the needs and the longings that exist in their hearts, allowing you to ultimately draw them into faith whereby they would glorify you for all of eternity. God, would we be a church that's submissive to that as individuals and as a corporate body, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, let's sing together.